All right, if you would this morning, before we get too far, if you can, would you uh, stand with us for um, honoring the reading of God's word this morning? Here's our key text from the day. We're going to read from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And here's what it says. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Let's pray. Father God, we just love to be in your house this morning, and we just ask that your word, you would take it and you would speak to us this morning, um, a direct word right to our hearts. In your mighty name we pray, amen and amen. You can be seated. Thank you. So not all of you know, um, but some of you do. I was on a week-long sabbatical um, this past week. Our, our denomination has a retreat center in Christianburg, Virginia, that they reserve space for pastors to rest and receive some on-site counseling. It's all um, free and paid for by our movement for the health and the well-being of our pastors. And so this is something I've never done before, but it, I felt with, with some prodding um, that this would be beneficial for me. And so leading up to this week, I had some close friends and leaders around me who were suggesting that, you know, maybe with the craziness of the year that we've had and that it would be a good idea to just go and try to catch a breath. And so the original plan was for both Deanna and I to go. Uh, our childcare plans fell through last minute and we decided that it would still be good if one of us could at least go. So I went and did that. So I get there Monday evening and the, the facility is so nice. I, I, I didn't do much exploring as I would generally do on a trip to a new place. I had never been to Virginia before. Um, but my energy has not returned to me yet. And it was not lost on me that this trip was intended for my rest. So I spent a lot of time doing that. I spent a lot of time resting, taking it easy, reading, doing you know, some studying and, and praying and reflecting as we come upon a new year. And I was also paired up with a longtime acquaintance, but first time meeting him face to face, a pastor friend, his name is Paul Kuzma, who had been a pastor and a leader in the Four Square Movement for many years. He was a district next gen rep um, back in the day, so we had that in common and also a pastor for some 30 years. Um, and so in the last five years, he's been stationed out at the retreat center as a full-time professional counselor for pastors coming to find Sabbath rest and restoration. And so on the first day, he had me tell my story and my history and my family history and marriage history, all my histories. <laughs> and I took a barrage of assessment tests and um, we'd set up a schedule where we would meet for an hour a day for the rest of the week. And I don't recall ever having um, a session with a professional counselor before, so this was all new to me. And very welcome, too, because, you know, I, I knew that I was feeling a bit overwhelmed, like a lot of us, you know, from the barrage of just stuff that has been um, going on around us in 2020. And so long story short, um, after all the assessments, we landed on the conclusion that by all accounts, I'm fairly emotional healthy, praise God. <laughs> I'm, I have a good outlook on life um, and I haven't lost my joy. So the one warning flag that popped up was in this test called the Holmes and Raw stress scale, which has been around for a long time. And it measures value points 
for different stressors in your life that add up over the course of a year. Uh, Things like personal injury or illness or family illness or loss or, you know, major changes in employment, your work environment, social gatherings and activities, the number of family gatherings. You add all of those things up. And if your number is at a certain level, it's an indicator that you, you know, how stressful of a year you've had. Well, you know, with things like COVID-19 and the stressors that come along with the tensions of, you know, leading through racial and political polarities, the amount of loss and the illness, you know, that even our church family has been surrounded by. And then in the past few weeks, falling ill myself, my my number ended up being pretty astronomically high. Anything over 300, according to the test, puts you at a 90% chance of developing an illness or having an accident or, in quotes, blowing up. I don't know what that means, (laughs) blowing up, Um, (laughs) according to the test description. So, and my number was closer to 400. And so, now thank God that you and I have a hope and a healer that restores our souls. I don't have to accept that report for what it is. And at the same time, I'm grateful for the opportunity to rest my soul a bit. But, and, and, and I guess I wanted to say all of that this morning to say that it can be a little bit disorienting when life just doesn't work out the way that you expect. And so to that end, what I wanna talk about this morning, of all the places to be born, why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? And to answer that question, I wanna look not just 2,000 years ago at the birth of Jesus, I wanna go back 2,700 years to a prophecy given by Micah in the Old Testament. Now, as soon as I say that, you're thinking, why are we switching gears? I know some of you are like, Sean, why would you know, what city Jesus was born in 2,000 years ago have any bearing on our tragedies and confusions today? <laughs> and why would we go back to an oracle 2,700 years ago, doesn't that feel like it's a little bit, you know, in the weeds or obscure if we're dealing with the real pains and the real frustrations and the real difficulty of today and this holiday season? And so let, let me just tell you something. As, as, as we look at prophecy, here's the interesting thing about prophecy in the Bible. They help us to see God's priorities. We talked about that a little bit last week, if you were here. They help us to see God's priorities and ours aren't always the same. And so that doesn't mean that he doesn't care about what's going on in our life, uh, but God makes his plans based on his priorities. And when we get on board with what he's doing, it gives us perspective, not just on our story, but on history. And so if we can get that perspective, it can comfort us in the middle of pain and disappointment. And so there's something for us here other than just answering, you know, the trivia question, why Bethlehem? Um, But we are going to ask that question this morning. So Last week, it was the why of the when. Why, if God was sending a hero, Jesus, did he send him when he sent him? Now, today, we're talking about why, of all places, send him to Bethlehem. And I think that when we see why, it will not just bring clarity, but comfort when life doesn't go our way. Props to my Old Testament professor, by the way, Dr. Seif, whose notes on this really informed my own this morning. He's, he's a genius, which makes me feel good about everything I'm going to say to you. So shout out to Jeffrey Seif. Um, but let me say this too. You know, as, as we talk about why Bethlehem, let me mention this. Setting matters, doesn't it? A good author cares about the setting in a story. A good author cares about the setting. It matters. And good authors will actually make it a part of the story, a character in the story. And so thinking of some of the greatest stories, setting is almost that, almost a character in the story. So when Shakespeare wants to contemplate our 
existential reality, <laughs> he has Hamlet ask the question, should I be or not be in the middle of what? A graveyard. So let's think about life and death in a place of death, right? Another classic, Avengers Endgame. <laughs> um, we're gonna end this story, bringing all these people together. So, you know, let's have the final fight be at the house where they were forged together as a family. And so now let them fight as one, as a family for the fate of the earth. Good writers care about setting when they tell the story. And God is not different. If you look through the Bible, he loves setting. And, and one of the best examples was when King David in the Old Testament um, had to flee from the capital city of Jerusalem. Um, and he had to flee from his son who was leading a coup and he went over the Mount of Olives. And so they would worship at the top of the Mount of Olives. And as he crests the top, he meets a faithful friend. And so as he, as he keeps on going, as he goes midway down, he meets a guy that was kind of a friend, but not trustworthy. And then when he hits the valley, there's a guy who curses him and spits at him and throws stones at him. And the writer, I think, does that on purpose. At the place closest to God, up high, he meets the most faithful friend. Midway down the mountain, it's a friend that his motive isn't quite sure. And at the bottom of the valley, it's an enemy who hates him. And you see, God likes to tell his narrative along with settings. Settings is almost a character in the story. So Bethlehem should mean something to us. And so now I, I know that maybe not right now because you're like Bethlehem, you think of kind of a feeding trough and, and some sheep, but let's look at what it would mean to them back in the setting of the story and the time that this was told and see what it might mean to us as we contemplate you know, life's disappointments. And, and here's the first thing that I would say that we're meant to think about when we hear the prophecy of Jesus being born in Bethlehem is that we would think hope that we would think hope. And to say that, we've got to back it up and give it a little context because what I read and what we read already this morning in our opening text this morning in Micah is what they were quoting at Jesus's birth. And so where the king will be born in Bethlehem and it says, we already read it, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be a ruler in Israel. They all knew this text. They were familiar with this. They, and they would think back to the moment when this was shared. And when they thought of this moment, it would bring hope. Now, let's answer the question why this morning. So, well, in Micah's day, who wrote this, Micah's book is a book of oracles or prophecies. And so there's maybe 20 of them. And they're not chronologically ordered, but they're thematically ordered. And in Micah 4 and chapter 5, there's three oracles, and they all start with the word now. And they all speak to the city of Jerusalem, the capital city of the nation, and they speak to her as a person. They call her, O daughter of Zion, or O daughter of troops. And each oracle speaks to the daughter and then tells her that things are really bad. And yet, in your present crisis, salvation is coming. And that's how each oracle kind of plays out. It's as bad as you think it is, <laughs> but help is coming. And what's interesting is they get better as it goes. The first oracle, the bad news is long, the good news is short, 
The second one, you get a little more good news. And by the last one, you've got the King of Kings rolling into Bethlehem. And so it gets better as it goes. But in Micah's day, this was a difficult time. And so that's why in the beginning, in the first oracle, this is what he says. He says, now, why do you cry aloud? Is, is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like, woman, like a woman in labor, he says. You're like a woman in labor. So he says, rise and groan, O daughter of Zion. Groan like a woman in labor because your life is going to be hard. What was happening back then was there was a nation called Assyria. And God had warned his people again and again. If you read the prophets and much of the Old Testament, he's warning them. You're pre, you, 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 you basically, he says, you persist in, in disobeying me and I can't bless you. And not only can I not bless you, but now the nations are going to be attacking you. Assyria is coming. And you see this happening throughout the Old Testament. As God is persistent in warning him, he, he's telling them Assyria is coming. And Assyria comes from the east and they begin to march from the north to the south, destroying everything in their wake. And by, the, by that time, the 12 tribes of Judah had split into two kingdoms. So there's 10 tribes up north and then there's two, kingdom, two in the kingdom of Judah in the south. And as you read through the story, you see Assyria come and they just begin to lay waste to every city. Uh, marching towards the capital city of Jerusalem. They're kind of making their way. That suddenly the whole kingdom of Israel is in ruins. The Philistines are destroyed, cities in Judah one after another fall, as eventually they work their way down to the capital city of Jerusalem. Then they surround the city and, and lay siege works, it's called. Siege works is a particularly dark way to do warfare. Um, that's where you surround a city and its supply lines and, and so that they starve to death and they, they basically lose their minds in the city. And that's how you win. So it's a dark day. It says like writhing and groaning of a woman in labor. So here it comes. As they march down, you hear the kind of the drum beats of the kingdom. They knew it was coming for us. It would kind of be like saying, you know, enemies have attacked Boston. Uh, uh, you know, has fallen. New York is in rooms. Philadelphia is in flames. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. That's kind of, you know, the language that, you know, in our day it would be. And as you hear it's coming, the, the dread begins to rise. And the prophet's letting them know, Assyria is coming. Your, your big towns, they're going down. They're going to fall. Difficulty is coming your way. And so he says, writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. But then he begins to speak and he says, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country and you shall go to Babylon. And he gives them what ends up being, um, as you keep on reading, good news. You're going to survive the attack of Assyria. But then he prophesied that Babylon, a different country, is going to destroy them, which happened about 200 years later. So it's kind of mixed news. Don't worry. You'll survive the attack of Assyria. It's the Babylonians that are going to take you out in about 200 years. <laughs> it's like, oh, thank God. Wait, what? <laughs> Right? And so he's, he's, he prophesies 200 years later, judgment is coming for them. And yet he tells them in the same breath, but when you're there, you'll be rescued and the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. It's hard now, but help is coming. And then in the second oracle, this is what he tells them. He says, now many nations are assembled against you saying, let her be defiled and let our gaze, eyes gaze upon Zion. So when King Sennacherib, over Assyria, marches down into Jerusalem and surrounded them, he would enlist foreign armies that would march under their banners. And so he's saying that all of the nations 
are around the city and they've laid siege work against them. They're going to starve them out. And it's interesting because we have ancient documents, not just from the scriptures, but that tell us the story. But we have Assyria's ancient documents. Um, Sennacherib, their ruler, had a history recorded on this big pillar. And on the pillar, he talks about this very same day, this, this verse we're reading about, where he devastated Israel. He took out city after city in Judah. And then this is what he says. He says, I surrounded Jerusalem, laid upon her earthen works, and I trapped Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. I trapped him. He talks about this very moment that I laid siege on Jerusalem. And here Micah tells us siege is coming. <laughs> the nations are around us. But then he turns the corner and this is what he says. He says, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord and they do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. They think they're coming in to take you over, but they're coming like lambs to the slaughter. He said, so arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. And so then he says, going, skipping over to the next chapter, verse one, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Now there's some irony in that moment because what happened to Hezekiah is that, you know, this was Israel in the nation of Judah when they were not at their best. They had not lived faithfully to the Lord. They, they had lost so much influence. And so Assyria had wrecked all the way down to their city and now has surrounded them. And Hezekiah was desperate. And he was, he was trying to make treaties with other countries. It was so bad that the scripture tells us that when Sennacherib surrounded their city, he told them at one point, it's recorded in the, the prophet Isaiah, he told them, hey, I'll send you 2,000 horses if you have riders to put on them. That while they're besieging the city, they're like, you, you need to borrow some horses. No, they don't even have enough people to ride them, which was technically true, they didn't. <laughs> and so Hezekiah is in a very bad way. And, and yet God tells them, I'm going to fight for you and I'm going to make you like iron. And so then God says, so arise, O daughter of troops. And the funny thing about that is the troop is the smallest contingent of soldiers. And so it's kind of like pointing out, Hezekiah, you really don't have an army, right? You have like a Boy Scout troop, right? You know, maybe the Girl Scouts, you know, gather the scouts. Arise, O daughter of troops. That's what he's saying. You know, rise and be victorious, scouts. And, and so you're like, how's that going to work? And, and, he, and he says, siege is laid against us. With the rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. They're so close to you, Hezekiah, that if they chose to stretch out, they would hit you in the face. You have no defenses. You're curled up in a ball in Jerusalem. But you, O Bethlehem, are too little to be counted among the, the clans. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler of my people in Israel. God told them, I'm gonna save you. I'm gonna save you. And here's what's crazy. Back then, he did. You can, you can read about it in the prophet Isaiah. What, what happens, they're, 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 they're besieging the city. Hezekiah is powerless. And Hezekiah begins to pray and ask God to save them. And what happens? 
a plague breaks out among the troops of the Assyrians, and then the king hears a rumor that someone's trying to take his throne way back in Assyria, so he goes back there, and when he gets home, he's assassinated by his son. <laughs> and so Hezekiah, who really has no forces at all, you know, assemble the troops, you know, wakes up one day and he looks out the window and everything, all the armies are gone. <laughs> and they left all their stuff because they were fleeing this plague that was breaking out. And so he went and, and he just raised and threshed, it says, and got all their gold and got to bring it into the temple because the Lord fights for him. But what's crazy about it is not only does that happen, God says, and I want you to know, out of Bethlehem, the smallest city will come a ruler of my people of old. And he prophesies not 200 years in the future, but 700 years in the future. And one day I'm going to send a king, a hero like King David, and he is going to take care of you. And what's happening in all of these oracles is he is saying, it's really as hard as you think. Yes, but hope is coming. Hope is present and hope, you know, hope right now and hope in the future too. And so what's great about that, as the prophet is telling them this, it's that hope that gives you the fuel to endure the hardship. Hope gives you fuel to endure the hardship. Yes, it's hard, but, but when you know help is coming, now you can have hope. That's what God does. And, and hope gives you the endurance to make it through hardship. So when you hear Bethlehem, and when they heard Bethlehem, they hear hope. When Israel is at its toughest day, God came through. So now in the future, when we're in a tough day, our God is a God who comes through. When you think Bethlehem, you think hope. It would be like this. Let's say, and I don't, and I don't, I don't want to make light of this, but the way this prophecy works it would be like if you had a terminal illness and you found out about it and, you know, you would begin to pray some very natural prayers, you know, would be, Lord, heal my body. Heal my body. Give me the right medical team around me. Give me the counsel, godly counsel around me. Give me a good reaction to the medicine I'm on. God, provide for my family to pay for all of this, right? All of that time, you'd be praying things like that. That scenario would be like if you were praying all of that, and then God sends an angel to you and says, I bring good news. Your great, great granddaughter is going to be president, and then took off. You'd be like, great, that's not at all what I was asking. Actually, you did not address several critical issues that I've been talking about for quite some time. And yet I'm strangely encouraged, right? Because that hadn't crossed my mind, but that sounds pretty cool. And it lets me know that there's a future beyond my present pain. Now, you didn't tell me that I wouldn't go through pain. You, you, you didn't tell me that life doesn't hurt. You didn't tell me that, I, you know, I get to live all my dreams, but you did tell me that there's a future and you told me that that future was good and it's actually better than anything that I cooked up. And so I'm at peace, even in the pain. And that's what prophecy does. God, how are you gonna solve Syria? How are you gonna solve this army that's coming and besieging the city? And he says, don't worry about Assyria. It's Babylon, you know, that you got to worry about. But even then, it's going to be fine because a king is coming. And when he sets up and rules, you'll have peace forever. 
And you may not know everything, but you know him who does know everything. And that's an encouraging thought. And so when you hear Bethlehem, you hear hope. And when they were under Roman occupation, they knew a king is coming in Bethlehem. In our darkest day, God came through in little Bethlehem. And in my dark day, he'll come through as well. Bethlehem tells me to have hope. Florence Chadwick had a dream of swimming from the coast of California to the coast of Catalina Island. And so she began to do it, a real challenge. This is 35 miles of swimming. Any of you done that in an afternoon, right? So she, she got out there and it was tough. I mean, this is freezing cold, shark infested water, a, a very difficult, grueling task. And so she began to do it. And as she began, a fog rolled in. And as that fog rolled in, she was about 15 hours into her swim. 15 hours and couldn't see a thing. And so she swam for 15 hours and 55 minutes. But there in the midst of that fog, she stopped swimming and they came and they rescued her and her mission had failed. But as she got on the boat and the fog lifted, she could see the coastline of Catalina Island. And she said, if I could have seen the coast, I could have kept on going. And so... She trained, and with that knowledge, she was able to do it. And that's what the prophets do. And we're in the middle of life, struggling. God lets us see the distant coastline. A king is coming. A king has come and will come. And so I may not know all the answers, all the particularities of the waves that you're in right now, but I know that there's a future, and that hope helps me endure hardship. Not only that, here's the second thing, Bethlehem. Bethlehem also teaches us humility. It teaches us humility. That God loves to exalt the lowly, and so we can be humble. You, you get it in the way that he talks about Bethlehem. In verse 2 of chapter 5, he says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, too little, for you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, who's coming forth from of old, from ancient days. Notice he calls them for you who are small or little, depending on the translation that you're reading. The small or little. The word small or little carries the idea, insignificant. You're not important. Nobody cares. Nobody's following Bethlehem on Instagram. It's like a one-sheep town. No one stops there. there. There's not the world's best anything there. No one cares about Bethlehem. It's little. It's insignificant. You are not a player on the world's stage. You know, it's, it's interesting. There are moments in Scripture and in history, and actually in, in the archive history, where the, where, where the nation of Judah is conquered. And when that happens, when you conquer people, it, it was tra tradition you would name all the cities that you conquered. It would, it, would, it would be like if someone, you know, conquered the East Coast. You know, they would put it in a list. They'd be like, man, we conquered Boston and New York and Philly and D.C. But they wouldn't be like D.C. and then, you know, we took out Christianburg. That's a little town that I was staying in this week in Virginia. They wouldn't say that. Or, you know, you know the great city of Kadoka fell under our power. <laughs> you know, it probably doesn't make the list. 
And it's the same on Sennacherib's list as he wrote about this in history, he named city after city. Bethlehem existed, Bethlehem gets name dropped in Genesis. Sennacherib's list leaves it off because who cares? No one cares. You, you might stop for gas there or get some food for your camel, you know, but n- no one cares. And yet God says, be encouraged. Oh, Christianburg, lift your gaze. Oh, Kadoka, you know, <laughs> because the king's coming from you. And I like to bring honor to humble places. God loves humility. Bethlehem is the humblest city that he could come up with. And what's great about that is in that humble city came our humble king. And everything about the narrative of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem talks about his humility, does it not? Think about this. When when, when his parents, we talked about this just a little bit last week. When his parents came to bring the sacrifice that you would bring to Jerusalem for the baby and the firstborn. Back then you were meant to bring a lamb and a bird as, as part of your first offering. But if you were poor, you would bring two birds, two turtle doves or pigeons. Now, why does the text say that? Because when turtle doves would migrate into the area, they would come in such a volume that anyone could catch them. Children could catch turtle doves. And it's interesting, the text always specifies young turtle doves. Why is that? Because you can't catch the old ones. They're, they're, they got old for a reason, right? They're wild, they can get away. But it says it's the little birds that, you know, don't have a clue. They're going around and they get, they, get, they get caught. And so little kids could catch them. Why is that important? Because some people in the land were so poor that they couldn't afford anything, but you could send your kids out and anybody's kid could catch two birds and God would say, you bring that and I will receive it. And so here's the thing. His parents were so poor that they brought the two birds for Jesus. And he didn't have a home, and he had one change of clothes. And you know, when he died, he died a sinner's death on a cross. Everything he did was lonely. Our king came in low. And one of his last acts on earth was to wash the feet of his disciples, the ones that he knew were about to scatter and betray him. He was lowly. And it was that humility that God exalted to the highest place. God loves to exalt humility. He cherishes that. When you think Bethlehem, you think humility. We follow a humble king, and that humility is attractive. You know that, right? True humility is attractive. None of us like hanging out with arrogant people. None of you were at the Christmas party saying, you know, you know what I wish would have happened? I wish Bob would have just talked more about his exploits. You know, only one hour about how great he is. I wanted to hear more, right? None of you love to hear that person that goes on and on about themselves. None of you is like, you know what? He goes on and on about how great he is. I just want to join in on that chorus. We don't do that. But when you see someone who is truly humble, they're easy to exalt. And so we love humility. And the gospels have taught us that it's humility that's so attractive about our king. Now, there's, there's a lot of hostility in our culture right now towards Christianity. People will, will go on and on about politics and perceived bigotry and talk about all these issues where Christendom has failed and it can be so overwhelming. And people will ask the question, you know, how can you support this? Why do you do this? How can you do that? And the thing is, the name of Christianity has been picked up by a lot of people. 
and they wave their banners and their flags, and I don't have answers to all of that, but I can say that I'm a Christian because I love Jesus, and I love that man and what he represents. And so let's talk about him for a second. Let me tell you what he's like. When a woman who had been devastated and used sexually, you know, Jesus made a point to come her way and to sit with her and to offer her life. Guys that had been alienated through betrayal and bad choices, Jesus brought dignity back into their lives. A leper who no one would physically touch. You ever been years without physical touch? He said to Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus' response was to touch him and say, I'm willing, be clean. That he is always moving towards the lowly. And as people shooed kids away, he said, no, I want the kids near me. That he was gentle. He washed the feet of his betrayer. And the more we talk about what he is like, the more animosity will cease. The anger will be drained out. I want to know a God like that. It's humility that's so easy to honor. And we have a humble king. And he came from Bethlehem. And we love a humility like that. It's what's beautiful it's what will change a culture. David Livingston went to be a great missionary in Africa. Historically, he's known as a great uh, missionary there. And um, they were concerned about him. He, he had been gone for a while, and they sent a guy named Henry Stanley in the New York Times to go find out what happened to him in the late 1800s. They thought he was dead. He'd been gone for so long, they hadn't heard anything. And so New York Times sent Henry Stanley. Henry called himself the greatest infidel to come out of London. That's how he saw himself. Um, he says, I don't believe any of this, uh, and they're sending me to go find a missionary, but I'm, I'm just you know, there to report the story. And so he went, and he said, he, he found him, and he said, for months, I just followed the feet of this old man to the jungle, and he would move from village to village, people to people, discovering their needs and meeting them. And he said, I had never seen humility like that. I had never seen a patience like that. And this is my favorite quote. This is, this is a direct quote. He had such humility, patience, and manliness. <laughs> and then by the end of it, he said, I put my faith in Jesus. And he wrote about it. And he said, he converted me, even though he didn't try to do it. And this is what he said. He said, I just saw the humility of that man and it stood out to me as so easy to honor. When you think of Bethlehem, you think hope. I have a future and a hard time. And I think humility, but I don't have to act like something bigger than I am. My king came in riding low and so I can come in low. God loves to exalt the humble. And here's the last thing that we think of. We think of the hero. This is a hero story. And God tips his cards when we read it again in verse 2 when he says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. And God does something interesting here. Um, in Israel's history, the greatest king, we know this, was King David. King David didn't start out as a great and mighty man. He was child number eight out of eight kids. And when God sent the prophet Samuel to anoint a new king after the wicked King Saul, God sent him 
And 1 Samuel tells us that Samuel um, uh, went to, to Jesse, who is in Ephrathite of Bethlehem, among the clans of Judah, by the way. <laughs> so it's the only other place all of this is put together. And so he's in those places, and God shows up there, and Samuel looks at all of those arrogant sons, <laughs> and he says, these aren't the ones. And then he asks Jesse, he said, you got any other kids? He says, yeah, kid number eight is out in the back. He's watching the sheep. So they grab him, and it's the humble shepherd who will lead my people. And humble shepherd, King David, was so great in his leadership of Israel and Judah, God told him, I'm going to put your descendant on the throne forever. And one of the greatest prophecies of Jesus is the son of David will sit on the throne forever and reign. The good shepherd king will care for us. Now, David's lineage didn't always have a great go. I don't know if you've ever tried to read through the Bible. Most of you, you know, we, we kind of die out around Leviticus. But if you manage to crawl your way into First or Second Kings, you start going, man, these guys are not good guys, right? And, and the kingdom of, of David seemed like it's going south. And now, you know, under Hezekiah, Assyria has wiped them all out. And Hezekiah is shut up like a bird in a cage. And, and so Micah says, but out of... Bethlehem, Ephrathah, from the clans of Judah. And they're like, wait a second, we've heard this before. We've heard this song before. We've heard this music play before. And, and so that's, that's, that's the same thing that when the first great king came on the scene, they said, you heard it right. He will be a shepherd like the king of old from the ancient of days out of the same root. A new king is gonna grow. Not like those other kings, but out of David's root will go the true king who will shepherd his people and we will always have peace. That's the prophecy, the covenant that God made with David that comes to fruition in the gospels. And you see it all throughout the narrative of Jesus' birth. The son of David is here. The true king has arrived. The prophecy has been fulfilled. And when you hear that, it stirs up hope, the thrill of hope. Movies steal this all the time. The prophecy of the chosen one, right? Frodo, who will humble himself and beat death to bring peace to the Shire. Um, you know, where did they get this, right? Where did they get it? The, the Lego movie, right? The chosen one who will topple evil and bring peace, right? Neo, who comes to break us out of the matrix. We love prophecies of the chosen one. Why? because we were hardwired for it, because they're all echoes of the true story. When the world went sideways, God promised a hero. And when David showed up on the scene, God said, keep your eyes open because he's gonna look like that. He's gonna look like that. And when Israel fell in its darkest day, he said, out of the city of David, Bethlehem will come a king like David, except his throne is gonna be forever. And when Jesus arrived, the true king is here. The son of David is here and his kingdom has no end. And so when we understand that, that prophecy gives us perspective, doesn't it? God may not solve all of my problems right here and right now, but he's given me perspective and his perspective gives me hope in the middle of hardship. 
So I don't have to have a lot of pride. I can be humble and I, because I serve a humble king. And that humility is what changes cultures. But I keep my eyes on the hero because God is faithful. The one who said he would do it will do it. He told them a king was coming and a king came and he told us the king is coming again. And so we believe it. If he's faithful, then he'll be faithful to us now. And that hero story gives me courage. For me, when Deanna tested positive for COVID-19 and I knew we'd I'll have to be quarantined and, you know, change our plans for the Thanksgiving holiday. You know, that weighed heavy on us. And the, the kids were visibly upset, you know, at least some of them, about, you know, not being able to go to, to school and, and church, you know, and see their friends for two weeks. Um, you know, Deanna was isolating in a downstairs bedroom in an effort not to get any of the rest of us sick. And so it's, it's always hard when the glue of the family, you know, is not able to be around and we're all missing her. And then, you know, two days in, I lost my sense of taste and smell and started feeling really fatigued. And, and so that's not fun when you're trying to take care of the family and you're in quarantine and all that's happening. And so when you're in that situation, you're in a bad way, right? And you could really use some help. But you know, you, you also don't want to, you know, put anyone else out, especially during the holidays when people are doing their own family things. And so when I started to receive some random messages from friends saying, basically, help is coming. You know, we're bringing a meal. Um, we're going to drop off some groceries. Tell us what you need. I know you've got an army of kids. You know, I've, I've got a pile of hand sanitizer and Clorox and wipes and I'm dropping them off. What else do you need? Here's the thing. At that moment, my life was a mess. Our life was a mess. We, we were tired. We were fatigued. And there were evenings where I felt like my heart wasn't going to make it through. You know, but when I received those messages from some of you, and you know who you are, saying help is coming, I knew that help was coming. It was good as done because that's who you are. And so you helped us find our course through our chaos and it's an amazing thing, and that's the church, right? That's how the church works, right? We help each other. And it was through that, you know, the caring, prodding of friends that I took this Sabbath week and received, you know, some counseling too while I was there. And Dr. Kuzma gave me some really good advice and some action steps to take as I go forward to make sure I'm taking good care of my mental health. And you go, why do you say all that? Because some of us, you're in the middle of it right now. And you're like, life's not working out the way I thought it would. You know, there's no chestnuts roasting on my open fire. In fact, the, the fire got real and burned my house down and somebody's throwing chestnuts at me. <laughs> my life's a mess and I don't know all the particularities of how it's gonna get worked out. I don't either, but here's what I do know. I know we have a king who made some promises and he's not slow in keeping his promises and we can trust him and we've seen him come through in the past and we will watch him come through in the future. And that gives us hope for the present. So be encouraged. You have a God who's guiding all of history and all of time for his glorious purpose. We saw that last week all of time, and through your, though your kingdom might be surrounded, we know this from scripture as well, your king is surrounding that enemy. And he has purpose 
and purposes that are good for those who will kneel at that manger in Bethlehem. And so here's the last thing I just want to mention as we close. Here's the tragedy of when this prophecy of Micah was spoken in the New Testament. The, the Magi traveled thousands of miles to see the child king. And when they show up in Jerusalem, they go to the city of rulers and they say, we've been following the star, so the king, where is he? And there were scribes there and without missing a beat, some of them probably from heart, they recited Micah 5.2, out of you, O Bethlehem, smallest among the clans, will rise a shepherd of my people. And so the wise men, they ride into Bethlehem, but the scribes don't. They didn't. There, there's wise men that would go thousands of miles to meet that king. And there were people who knew the prophecy by heart that wouldn't travel five miles into the burbs to go and meet him. And I just want to encourage us today. I don't know, you know what your story is like and I don't know, you know what your interaction with the church is like and I don't know what baggage you have or don't have, but I want, I want to tell you this. There's a king in Israel and there's a king on the throne in heaven and there's a king who came for us lowly and now is seated and exalted and he is calling the low to come into his family and I don't want you to stay put in Jerusalem and miss all that a heaven that is worshiping a king in Bethlehem. I want you to come and I want you to know him. Let's not get so caught up in the busyness, or even the traditions of the Christmas season and miss Christ at the center of it. Don't be too proud to take a ride out to Bethlehem. Because God is moving history through his son. And we may not know the answer to every question, but we know the answer to the biggest questions. And that will give us hope in hardship, perspective in pain, and even joy that comes cascading back because we know the story and we know the Savior. Amen. Father God, we just thank you this morning for the thrill of hope. The thrill of hope that comes from a little town of Bethlehem. God, we thank you that you came humbly, Lord, and that's attractive to a world that's looking for a Savior and looking for a rescue a world that's been hurt and burnt and trodden upon. God, you came in low, but God exalted you to the highest place to be the hero of the story. So God, we place our hope in you, our trust in you. God, and we move as your people, as your children, as your sons and daughters, and we say thank you for the hope that you give to us not just 2,000 years ago, but this very day and for the present. God, we thank you for that in your mighty name. Amen. Pastor Derek. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Sean. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We're going to be here just a few more minutes. Um, it is my pleasure to, my joy, something I'm excited about to get to share with you guys, what I believe is possibly the greatest miracle of Jesus. That is uh, Emmanuel, God with us. I want to read you uh, from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. 
It says, in the beginning, the word already existed. Now this is capital word. It means uh, we're talking about a person and specifically Jesus, all right? In this passage, when we talk about the word, we're talking about Jesus. And it says, in the beginning, the word already existed. This is also a, a, a paraphrase or a rephrasing of Genesis 1-1, where it said, in the beginning, there was nothing. So in the beginning, Jesus was there. It goes on to say, the word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. So not only was Jesus there before time began, before creation, not only was Jesus there, but he was doing the work. Verse five, the light shines in the darkness. Now, in this case, light is also referring to Jesus. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus was on his way. Verse 10, he came, he, Jesus, came into the very world that he created, but the world did not recognize him. He came to his own people and they rejected him, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. I think something that we, we often do, and I think it's a human thing, I think it's a core thing, we tend to assume that everyone else is like us. So people that lie tend to assume that everyone is lying people that are hurt assume that either everyone else is hurt or that everyone else is going to hurt them. Uh, and, and we look at God and we tend to assume that God is like us. So say I have um, grown up and I have uh, uh, come out of maybe poverty or uh, abusive situations or, you know, something dark. And I consider that like my dark days and I have come out and I have achieved glory. I'm, I'm in my, where I belong. Right? My dreams are here. Uh, and then from here, what would it take for me to go back to the darkness, to go back to the hard place? We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't. But Jesus created everything. He was seated at the right hand of the Father. He was already in heaven. And he came to earth. And that's what Christmas is about. Charlie Brown. Pam would not let me name my son Charles. My grandpa's name was Charles. I wanted to name my son Charles. She wouldn't have it. For those of you that don't know, my last name's Brown. <laughs> it would have been awesome. But I digress. Hebrews tells us that Jesus came to be one of us, to walk with us, so that he would be an appropriate leader. Because it's important that a leader know who he's leading and have similar experiences, and Jesus has those. If Holy Spirit is speaking to you this morning, you might be like, well, what is it like? If God's speaking to me, what is it like? 
Well, for one, it's probably gonna sound a little bit like your own voice in your head, but it's gonna be a voice of hope and promise. There might be a feeling in your chest of excitement or uh, wonder. But I believe there are a lot of people either online uh, now or in the future or, or in-house right now that where Holy Spirit's speaking to you, he's, he's pulling on you, he's tugging, tugging on you. Maybe you feel that this morning and Holy Spirit's drawing you to Jesus. And maybe you feel like you should respond, but you just don't know how. Well, here in a, here in a couple of minutes, I'm gonna give you guys some words. Um, these aren't magic words. They're just words to kind of help ease your mind. I, I heard somebody say once that, that when, we, when we come to God and Holy Spirit starts working in our lives, our spirit comes to life and it's excited about it, but it takes our brain a little while to catch up. That's what these words are gonna help do. Just help our brain catch up. But maybe you've been a Christian for a while and maybe life has beaten you down and you kind of feel like there isn't any light anymore. Or maybe depression uh, over the politics or pandemics or the holiday season has you feeling separated from Jesus. You know, we know that uh, statistics tell us that this time of year is really, really bad for depression. And there are a lot of reasons for it. And we want to, we want to accept that. As Christians and as the church, we want to accept that this is a hard time for people. Maybe you had family members die in December during the holiday season. Maybe other bad things happened to you during the holidays and, and you just don't like the Christmas season anymore. That's okay. But we want to accept it and we want to address it and we want to learn how to heal from it. Okay? So if you're, if you're one of those people and you, you just feel like the, the light is gone, you know, sometimes we think the light is gone, but really our eyes are just shut. I'd like to remind you this morning, verses five and six that we read before, the word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. For one reason or another, you may perceive that it is dark, but it's not. Because God's not done yet. He's not lost. He's still sovereign. He still loves you. He still has a plan for you. And I'd like to give you some words to help you get your head and your heart back home where they belong this morning. So if you're either of those two groups of people, you feel like Holy Spirit's drawing you to something new or, or you feel like Holy Spirit's drawing you back to him, uh, I'd like to, to encourage you to just go ahead and, and repeat these words after me. Jesus. Jesus. I need you. I need you. And you knew I needed you. I needed you. So you came to earth. You came to earth. To be with me. To be with me. Then you died for me. You died for me. And now I believe. Now I believe. You are bringing me to life. You are bringing me to life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. For shining your light. Shining your light. Into my life. Into my life. Help me to follow you. Help me to follow you. Amen. Amen, amen.